Hey everybody, uh, this is Sarah Kreger and welcome to the Ventilators 101 series. So I feel obliged to start any lecture on ventilators with the important question of why do you care? Because until recently, while I always thought ventilators were really cool, um, I found that not everybody else thought they were maybe quite as cool as I did. However, with the development of recent events, um, it turns out that more and more people are beginning to think that actually maybe ventilators are a little bit cool, or at the very least, maybe I should know something about them. Um, and it would be really nice and really convenient if I could just write 10 steps down on a piece of paper, you could read them, follow them, and voila, manage any COVID patient on a vent. Unfortunately, things are not turning out to be that simple. Um, this is a quote from Dr. Gattinoni. He is a world-renowned pulmonary physiologist, and he also happens to be Italian, so he got to see a lot of COVID patients. And um, one of the things that he said about his experience taking care of COVID patients is, this is a kind of disease in which you don't have to follow the protocol, you have to follow the physiology. In spite of this, um, everybody promptly decided to start trying to create protocols for COVID patients, because wouldn't it be nice if we could just completely skip having expertise in vents and have some kind of lovely cookbook stepwise thing that we could hand out to everybody and voila, you can take care of COVID patients. Well, as things have developed, we have some good news. And the good news is that a group of very smart people in Toronto got together and developed a COVID ventilator protocol. It appears on QXMD, in fact, and I actually think it's quite thoughtful and a very smart protocol as far as these things go. Unfortunately, I also have some bad news for you. And the bad news is this is what that protocol looks like. So if measuring an airway opening pressure to take into account the possibility of airway closure and using a single breath recruitability maneuver to calculate the compliance of the recruited lung, is not something that you're super comfortable with, you can't even get past the first step. And so really what this protocol should say is, step one, understand pulmonary physiology. Step two, know how to assess pulmonary physiology by using a ventilator. And step three, apply steps one and two to the patient in front of you. Yeah, this particular protocol is not going to be the nice cookbook medicine kind of thing that will allow anybody walking off the street to manage a COVID vent. I think that in a bigger picture way, as far as I'm concerned, the whole idea that protocols and algorithms are the way to go in critical care is just fundamentally flawed. I believe that critically ill patients, they're just too complicated. No one size fits all algorithm is really gonna get to the heart of what you need to be doing in critical care. And so I believe that algorithms and protocols have a place in both medicine and many other fields, but I just truly don't believe that their place is the management of the critically ill patient, at least for the most part. So if we're not saying that we should just write down protocols, and I'm not about to go teach you all the guidelines and protocols to memorize, what should we be doing? Well, I think that the correct alternative is the development of expertise understanding what you are doing and why, rather than memorizing a set of steps that you follow without actually really knowing why. And in order to develop expertise, in order to be able to understand the mechanism which allows you to improvise, to respond to situations that you haven't previously encountered in a way that a cookbook doesn't, you actually have to understand mechanistically what you're talking about.
And so the focus of these series is not to tell you step by step, this is how you do this every time. Then if you go to step two, it'll go well. That's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm trying to do is introduce the core concepts in a way that will allow you to think about them, to play with them, and to put them together at the bedside to manage a complicated patient in a situation you may never have encountered before. All right, so here we go with Vents 101. Um, this series is going to be in four different parts. The first part is on pulmonary physiology, specific to what you need to know to think about ventilator management. The second part is some foundational concepts for ventilator management, where we go through the basic vent parameters, how to translate those into the basic vent modes, and then how to look at all of that on a ventilator. Um, part three is on different managed approaches for different underlying pathophysiology. And then part four is the beginning of stuff we're going to talk about with troubleshooting, starting with vent alarms and then a little bit on hypoxia. So starting with part one, pulmonary physiology. The two most important concepts to understand here are compliance and resistance. Now, fortunately, these are two concepts that you already have an intuitive understanding of. Um, so, for example, what would you rather do? Would you rather blow up a beach ball with a boba straw or a basketball with a coffee straw? I mean, obviously, we all know it would be much easier to blow up a beach ball with a boba straw, right? That's pretty intuitive to everybody. And so that is an intuitive understanding of both compliance and resistance. And so all we need to do now is quantify a little bit and translate it into what it means for the lungs. Let's start with compliance. This is where we're talking about either our beach ball or our basketball. Here's the idea. Let's say we want to go to the beach one day. So we take our beach ball, we want to blow it up. We find that in order to blow it up, we need to add 500 milliliters of air to our beach ball. Then we find that that 500 milliliters of air gives us a pressure of 25. Now, if we want to, we can go on and continue doing this experiment, and we find that if we add 400 milliliters of air to the beach ball, that gives us a pressure of 15. If we add 300, that gives us a pressure of 10, and so forth, which eventually allows us to draw a curve that looks something like this, that describes the relationship between how much volume you put into our beach ball and what the pressure inside our beach ball would be. And this relationship is called compliance. It's the curve that describes the relationship between volume and pressure. Now, a structure like our beach ball has good compliance, right? That's why it's intuitive. A beach ball is going to be easy to blow up, right? That's in comparison to our basketball, which is a structure that has poor compliance. So what does that mean? Well, functionally, what that means is, let's say we blow up both our beach ball and our basketball to the same volume. We put 300 milliliters of air in both the beach ball and the basketball. What we find is that when we put 300 milliliters of air in the beach ball, that gives us a pressure of 10. But when we put the same amount of volume of air in the basketball, now we get a higher pressure, a higher pressure of 20. And so compared to our beach ball, compared to a structure with good compliance, our basketball has poor compliance, meaning for the same volume, it'll have a higher pressure. Or conversely, for the same pressure, you'll get a lower volume. So that's the concept of compliance. Now let's talk about the concept of resistance. So this is where we compare our two straws. 
either our boba straw or our coffee straw. And this is the key equation that talks about resistance. You probably remember this from physics way back. It talks about the relationship between flow through a tube, airflow, water flow, whatever you want, and the characteristics of that tube. Now, you don't need to remember everything with this equation because there's one key relationship that's really the only thing you need to keep in mind, which is the Porsche that flow is proportionate to the radius of the tube to the fourth power. And it's really this fourth power relationship that is important here. It's this fourth power relationship that you need to keep in mind. Why? Well, let's take a look. So, if we're going to look at a tube, if we're going to look at our straw, and we are going to compare the relative radius of that straw, what's the radius of the straw, to the rate of flow through that straw. What we find is that this isn't a linear relationship, right? As you drop the radius, you don't drop the flow in a linear way. It looks more like this, right? So, what does that mean? Well, here's what this curve means because the relationship between the radius of a tube and the relative flow through the tube is not linear. This is what happens. Let's say we have a relatively larger structure, like say our boba straw, and then we compare it to a structure with a relatively smaller radius, like our coffee stirrer straw. What we find is that a small decrease in radius will give us a disproportionately large decrease in flow. And so this small decrease gives us a very, very large decrease in flow. And this is the concept of resistance. And what this means is that whether it's a straw or an airway, changing the radius by even a relatively small amount can drop the flow, the rate of flow through that tube by a very large amount. And this is why when we're comparing our boba straw to our coffee straw, we say that our boba straw has relatively low resistance to flow, whereas our coffee straw has relatively high resistance to flow. All right, now we're going to talk about ventilation perfusion matching, VQ matching. So let's say you're the lungs. And if you're the lungs, what you want to do is oxygenate the blood, right? So if you're trying to oxygenate the blood, you want to send the blood to high areas of oxygen because different areas of the lung are different. Some areas are well oxygenated. Some alveoli get better oxygenation than other areas. And so you want to send the blood towards those areas that have high oxygen, towards the areas with good oxygenation. So if you're the lungs, how are you going to do that? What are you going to do? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to cause the pulmonary capillaries to vasoconstrict selectively in the areas of low oxygen. So when the pulmonary capillaries sense low oxygen, they vasoconstrict. What does that do? That shunts blood over to the areas of high oxygen. This concept is called hypoxic vasoconstriction. And it turns out it's really important in pulmonary physiology. And also later when we talk about um, the right heart and right heart failure, it turns out it's also important there. But for the moment, let's talk about its role in VQ matching. So the idea with VQ matching is that you want to match the perfusion. You want to match where you're sending your blood to areas that are optimally ventilated. That's the idea. 
Now, on a normal day, this is good, right? You have the alveoli that bring the oxygen into the pulmonary capillaries. You have the pulmonary capillaries that bring the CO2 so that you can get it out through the alveoli. And as long as you match the amount of blood going to an individual alveoli with how well ventilated that alveoli is, everything goes great. But there's two ways in which this can go wrong. The first one is when you have a problem with your alveoli. Who knows what the problem is? Maybe it's collapsed, maybe it's filled with pus, maybe it's filled with fluid, but you can't get the oxygen in. This is called a shunt. Alveoli is messed up, can't get the oxygen in, pulmonary capillaries fine, but you can't oxygenate the blood because you can't even get the oxygen there. That's a shunt. On the other end of the spectrum, we have something called dead space. This is when now our alveoli is working great, but there's something wrong with our pulmonary capillaries. And so they can't get the CO2 to the alveoli, and therefore you can't get the CO2 out of the body because the alveoli are supposed to breathe it out. But if you can't even get it in there in the first place, that doesn't really work so well. So this is the other end of the spectrum, dead space. So VQ mismatch is a spectrum. You have some areas that may have a shunt, you have some that may have a dead space, and what we'll find is that in different respiratory pathophysiologies, often you can have both. So why do you care about VQ matching? Um, and it turns out you actually really do care about VQ matching. This isn't just like a fun thing you have to know for the critical care boards. Um, this actually has some major clinical implications. And particularly with regard to COVID, increasingly the thinking has become that VQ mismatch plays a really important role in the lung pathophysiology of COVID. In addition, with any respiratory disease, especially with the patient on a ventilator, you have to understand the clinical implications of VQ matching. So the first one is increasing the FiO2 does not fix a shunt. These are the patients where you slap like 100% non-rebreather on top of their nasal cannula. Their oxygen kind of budges, but not really. So what's going on here? Well, all right, you have a situation where our alveoli is not working, but our pulmonary capillary is. So the body's sending the deoxygenated blood through the pulmonary capillary. The idea is that it gets oxygenated when it goes by the alveoli. But wait a minute, that doesn't work because our alveoli isn't working. And so we can't get the oxygen to the blood in the pulmonary capillary. And so let's say our, you know, oxygen in the pulmonary capillary starts out at 50. And then as it goes by the alveoli, what's supposed to happen is it gets oxygen, but it can't because it can't access the oxygen. So on the other side, you don't really increase the blood oxygen content by a whole lot. Now, then what happens is the blood from that pulmonary capillary mixes with the blood from pulmonary capillaries that may have access to better oxygenation, but since they mix together, you still get hypoxia. You still get decreased O2. Now, what happens if we try and fix this problem by giving the patient a high FiO2? Our patient's desatting, we change the FiO2 from 50% to 100%. Well, that doesn't really help us because our problem wasn't that we weren't giving enough FiO2. Our problem was we can give as much as we want. It can't get to the blood because there's something wrong with our alveoli. 
Now let's talk about the clinical implications of dead space. So here's the deal. If you have prominent physiologic dead space, then increasing the minute ventilation. So the minute ventilation is just how much air you're blowing in and out of the lungs per unit time. In the case of a lot of physiologic dead space, increasing the minute ventilation does not help you. Increasing your minute ventilation will not fix your CO2. And this is a situation you see, for example, um, you'll see it sometimes on BiPAP, you'll see it sometimes on a vent, when you know you get an ABG back, the CO2 is really high. So you're like, okay, I'll go up on the tidal volume or I'll go up on the respiratory rate. And then you do that and you get another ABG back and your CO2 hasn't really changed. It's often because of this problem. So what's going on here? Well, the pulmonary capillary is supposed to take the CO2 from the body and then deliver it to the alveoli so the alveoli can blow it off. But wait a minute, that's not happening because your pulmonary capillary can't really deliver the CO2 to the alveoli. And so that CO2 just hangs out in the blood because there's something wrong with your pulmonary capillary. Now, if we increase the minute ventilation, if we increase the quantity of air, the volume of air that's going in and out of your alveoli per unit time, will that help you? Will that blow off more CO2? No, it won't. Because your problem isn't that you're not moving enough air. Your problem is that the CO2 can't get to the alveoli in the first place. All right, so that's VQ matching. Now let's talk briefly about respiratory failure. Uh, not so much respiratory failure 101, but just the key things about respiratory failure that you need to think about in relation to vent management. So this is not rocket science. This is not super complicated. In respiratory failure, there's two basic issues we can have. We can have a ventilation problem where you can't get the CO2 out and that gives us hypercarbic respiratory failure. Or we have an oxygenation problem where you can't get the oxygen in, which gives us hypoxic respiratory failure. So let's start with ventilation problems, hypercarbic respiratory failure, and talk about the key things we need to think about with this kind of respiratory failure. So the way I conceptualize hypercarbic respiratory failure is by a bellows analogy. And there's basically three categories of problems that can cause hypercarbic respiratory failure. The first is the hole you're trying to blow the air out of is too small, right? The hole is too small. You can't get good airflow out of that hole. So you just retain the CO2. Another problem you can have is your bellows is too stiff, right? It's made of something really stiff. It's really hard to move a bunch of air because it's just too stiff. Last problem is whoever is working the bellows is just too weak to really move a lot of air. Now, it turns out that we've already talked about two of these problems. We've already talked about the too small and the too stiff problem when we talked about our coffee stirrer straw and our basketball, right? We intuitively knew that it would be difficult to blow up a basketball with a coffee straw, right? Why? Because of these two problems. The radius of the coffee stirrer straw is small and our basketball is stiff. And that means it's going to be difficult to do. So that's sort of how I think about the mechanisms underlying hypercarbic respiratory failure. How are we going to quantify hypercarbic respiratory failure? Because both in your own mind for sort of triage and thinking about how worried I am about this patient, but also when you're trying to communicate to the ICU or another team about this patient, it's useful to have a way to quantify the degree of their respiratory failure. 
So with hypercarbic respiratory failure, the really important thing to remember is you have to know what their baseline CO2 is. Now, this is much more important in hypercarbic respiratory failure than it is in hypoxic respiratory failure because there's a much wider range of people with a baseline CO2 than a wider range of people with a baseline O2. So you can have people who are just walking around with a CO2 of 100 on a normal day for them. That happens not infrequently because the body has a lot of compensatory mechanisms to deal with that. It's much more rare to see people who are just walking around with an O2 of 70 on a normal day, that's much more rare because the body's ability to compensate for that is not as strong. So with hypercarbic respiratory failure, it's really important to understand what their baseline is because baselines can vary pretty wildly from different people. Okay, that's one reason that it's important to know. But there's also a second reason. Um, the second reason is you look at their APG and if you don't try and take into account what their baseline CO2 is, it can really lead you down the wrong diagnostic track. So if I'm looking at this ABG, the first thought is, okay, we're in trouble. Our CO2 is 95. You know, clearly they have a respiratory acidosis. They must have hypercarbic respiratory failure. Okay. Now I've seen patients and there was one particular patient I saw recently where I got called down to the ED because this patient was, quote, failing BiPAP and she was going to get intubated. So I come down and, um, you know, the person who was on was like, you know, there's just something, I don't know what's going on with this patient, um, but they're altered and their CO2 is really high. You know, it's like 85. Um, but at the same time, you know, they've been intubated a bunch of times and I guess this is just more of the same, but I don't know. So I go see the patient and indeed they are both altered and their CO2 is 85. But if you look back at the patient's record and you look especially at their baseline bicarb, you realize that the patient's CO2 is usually 80. And so if their CO2 is usually 80, their current CO2 of 85 can't really explain their altered mental status. And it turns out that this particular patient was altered actually because they had a brain bleed. And so if you don't calculate their baseline CO2, you can really come to some incorrect conclusions and be tricked into thinking that they're altered or whatever their problem is, is because of that CO2, when in reality, that's just their baseline. So how do we calculate their baseline CO2? Because it would be nice if all patients could come in and say, ah, my baseline CO2 is this. Or if they had an ABG yesterday, that would be lovely, but it doesn't really work like that. Um, but fortunately, there's a way to calculate their baseline CO2 even without prior labs on them. And here's the deal. What you do is you look at their bicarb. Because if they have chronic respiratory acidosis, then they're going to have a chronic compensatory metabolic alkalosis. And so here's how you calculate this. For every four, the bicarb is elevated above normal. So normal bicarb, we'll call it 24. The CO2 is elevated 10 above normal. Normal CO2 is 40. So in a chronic respiratory acidosis, for every four, the CO or the bicarb is above normal the CO2 is 10 above normal chronically. So we look at the patient's bicarb. All right, their bicarb's 36. So how does this math play out? Well, 36 minus 24 is 12. So this patient's bicarb is 12 above a normal bicarb. 
right? We say let's divide 12 by 4 because for every 4 the bicarb is above normal. So 12 divided by 4 is 3, that's easy. And then because for every 4 the bicarb is above normal, the CO2 will be 10 above normal chronically. We say 3 times 10 is 30. And then we add 30 to a normal CO2 of 40, telling us that this patient's baseline CO2 is around 70, just based on their bicarb. So now looking at this ABG, we're saying, okay, like 95 isn't good, but you know, it's not like their baseline's 40, their baseline's 70. So this patient is having some acute on chronic hypercarbic respiratory failure. So that's how you figure out their baseline CO2. All right. So there's another important thing you have to think about with ventilation problems and when you're quantifying them, which is do not be tricked by the entitled CO2. Um, and I've seen this happen again and again. You know, we intubate a patient, um, we stick them on an entitled CO2, the entitled CO2 reads 35, we pat ourselves on the back, oh, we're like, oh, these vent settings are great, okay, good. Um, all done, we have a good CO2. The problem with that is you can't always take the entitled CO2 at face value. Why? Because it may or may not be the same as the PA CO2, as the arterial CO2. Why? Well, this is when we go back to what we talked about with dead space ventilation. So here's the idea. Remember with dead space ventilation, the whole problem is that there's something wrong with the pulmonary capillaries, meaning that the CO2 can't even get to the alveoli. So in this situation, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if we have a patient who has a bunch of dead space ventilation? Well, the CO2 is going to go through the pulmonary capillaries and it can't get out. It can't escape the pulmonary capillaries because they're all messed up. And so your arterial CO2, if you get an ABG, your arterial CO2 is going to go up. But what happens to your end tidal? Is your end tidal CO2 going to go up? Well, no, it doesn't. Why? Because the whole problem is that you can't even get the CO2 to the alveoli in the first place. And remember, that's the CO2 you're measuring with an entitl CO2. So you can really be tricked by just looking at the entitl. If a patient has totally normal, healthy lungs, they should be about the same. The arterial will be a little higher than the entitl by like five, but not significantly. But if you have a patient with sick lungs, if they have ARDS, COPD, interstitial lung disease, if they have a massive PE, in fact, then you'll run into the situation where often your arterial CO2 goes up, your PaCO2 is high, but your entitle doesn't. Now, it turns out this isn't just an inconvenience. Um, this is called an entitle CO2 gradient, and it can actually tell you quite a bit about your patient's lungs and pathophysiology. And we'll talk about some of the details of that later in the lecture on massive PE. But for the moment, we've talked about some ventilation issues with conceiving and quantifying hypercarbic respiratory failure. Now let's do the same thing with our oxygenation problems with hypoxic respiratory failure. So oxygenation problems. There's really sort of three different things um, that frequently cause oxygenation problems. Um, one, you have something other than air filling your alveoli. It can be pus, it can be fluid, it can be blood, whatever you want. Two, your alveoli are collapsed. They collapse, they're not working, you can't get the air in because, oh wait, they're collapsed. And three is that we're having some kind of problem with our alveolar pulmonary capillary membrane. Okay, 
Now, here is the thing about these three problems. These three problems cause hypoxia, right? But keep in mind, they also cause your beach ball lungs to turn into basketball lungs. Now, this is a significant thing because what that means is that we often find that patients with really bad hypoxic respiratory failure often tend to have poor lung compliance. And so because of that, we're kind of used to seeing patients who are hypoxic. We're used to them having poor lung compliance. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons that, you know, there was so much confusion with COVID, especially initially, because we're used to seeing this, but then these patients with COVID would come in and they'd be like satting 70, but their lung compliance was great. Um, now, why that is, we'll talk about in the lecture on COVID pathophysiology, and it probably has a lot to do with VQ mismatch. But usually, the mechanisms that cause hypoxia are the same mechanisms that cause decreased lung compliance. Not always, but often. Now, how do we quantify our oxygenation problems? Um, the most useful way, I think, to do this is the PA to F ratio. The ratio of the PaO2 to the FiO2. Because if I have a patient who comes in, they're a little hypoxic, I put them on some oxygen, and I get an ABG, um, well, if on the ABG, my PaO2 is 85, that may be fabulous if they're on you know one liter of oxygen, or it may be awful if they're on 100% FiO2. And so in order to quantify that relationship, because the PaO2 only means something to you if you know what kind of FiO2 the patient's getting, you use the P to F ratio. So as is obviously the case, the P to F ratio is simply the ratio of the PaO2 to the FiO2, or you know the PaO2 on the ABG to the FiO2. And the only thing to remember really with this is that we use the FiO2 in decimal places, so it's 0.21% to 1, which is 100%. So for example, if we have somebody with a PaO2 of 100, and they're on an FiO2 of 0.5, so 50% FiO2, then we calculate the PF by saying, all right, our PaO2 is 100, our FiO2 is 0.5, 100 divided by 0.5 equals 200. That's our P to F ratio. What does that number mean? Well, we use these numbers to put hypoxic respiratory failure into categories of mild, moderate, and severe. Now, these numbers were originally developed to quantify ARDS, but it turns out that one, ARDS is much more complex, diverse, and multifactorial than we initially thought. And two, I think it's helpful to use these numbers just in general to quantify hypoxic respiratory failure due to any cause. Um, so mild hypoxic respiratory failure, we're talking a P to F of 200 to 300. Moderate, we're talking 100 to 200. And severe, less than 100. Um, it's useful to be able to use these numbers when you're talking to your ICU colleagues or, you know, especially when we're talking to people and they're just, you know, your patient's failing the vent and you're trying to get them transferred for ECMO, something like that. Um, it's a really meaningful number to most ICU people. And so, like, you can try and be like, oh, the patient's really hypoxic respiratory failure. Uh, but if you say their P to F is 70, that means something um, quite significant to the ICU person. And it's usually a much more efficient way to communicate, no, seriously, the patient's sick. Can you please get down here? So those are our oxygenation problems and how to quantify them. Now, it turns out with 
both of these things. It is sometimes the case where you have prominent hypercarbic respiratory failure. Sometimes you have prominent hypoxic respiratory failure, but often you have both together. I find it useful to think about these two things as is one of them prominent or is this truly a mixed problem? Now we're going to go on to part two foundational concepts. <laughs>